Well, good morning. My name is Nate Irwin, and I'm the pastor of Global Outreach here at College Park, and it's my privilege to fill in again for Pastor Mark while he's on vacation. A couple things as we begin today. I'd like to welcome the folks in Columbus who are with us through a video feed. also want to mention that the men's retreat is coming up mid-August, and there's a sign-up table in the foyer that you can sign up and register for that good time of fellowship for the men. Now, I want you to know that we're not going to get through all this material today. Unfortunately, we got a long section. There are notes out in the foyer. There's a manuscript of this sermon that you can grab and kind of fill in the pieces. There are also notes uh, in the bulletin if you want to follow along as we go through today's message. Right before we do that, let me invite you to join me in a short word of prayer. Make us to know your ways, O Lord. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all the day long. In Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Chapter 1, Down the Rabbit Hole. Alice was beginning to get very tired of sitting by her sister on the bank and of having nothing to do. So she was considering in her own mind whether the pleasure of making a daisy chain would be worth the trouble of getting up and picking the daisies. When suddenly a white rabbit with pink eyes ran close by her. There was nothing so very remarkable in that, nor did Alice think it so very much out of the way to hear the rabbit say to itself, Oh dear, oh dear, I shall be late. But when the rabbit actually took a watch out of its waistcoat pocket and looked at it and then hurried on, Alice started to her feet, for it flashed across her mind that she had never before seen a rabbit with either a waistcoat pocket or a watch to take out of it. And burning with curiosity, she ran across the field after it and was just in time to see it pop down a large rabbit hole under the hedge. In another moment, down went Alice after it, never once considering how in the world she was to get out again. And you know how the story progresses. Alice finds herself, after tumbling through a long tunnel, in a completely different world where all the rules had changed. And the point for us this morning is that there is another world out there than the one that you and I live in and bump into every day. And it's called the kingdom of God. There is a passageway to that world and his name is Jesus. And many times that world is as different from the workaday world that we live in as Wonderland was for Alice. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It is Jesus explaining to surface earth dwellers what his kingdom is really like. We've seen some of these strange principles already. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Be happy when you're persecuted. If you hate someone, it's as if you've murdered them. You can't ogle the actors and actresses in movies. Marriage is not an experiment. It's permanent. And so on. And as if we were not disoriented enough by this point in the sermon, Jesus in our text today goes completely upside down on us. Now our problem is that you and I as human beings are essentially selfish people. The world revolves around us. But more than that, you and I are also the product of 21st century America. We have been weaned on the principles of the Declaration of Independence. 
in which it was stated that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with what? Certain inalienable, see we all know that because we're Americans, certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And our founding fathers were concerned that someday these rights might be somehow taken away from us. So they added to the Constitution the Bill of Rights, which became a piece of paper that any citizen of the United States could hold up to somebody who was saying, you have to do this or you can't do that, and say, I don't have to do that and I can do this because, see, it's written right here in the Bill of Rights. And you know what? I am very thankful for our founding fathers and for that Constitution. Because by the grace of God, it has allowed the United States to be the greatest, the freest, and the most prosperous nation that the world has ever seen. You and I are tremendously fortunate to be alive and living in America in this day and age. But then along comes Jesus, the rabbit with the pink eyes, so to speak. And he hurries across our path and then he jumps down a rabbit hole. And he says, if you want to follow me, and you remember what we're all about as a church? Igniting a passion to follow Jesus. So now we're going to follow this rabbit down the rabbit hole into his wonderland and see what life is like down there. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. Jesus is saying to this crowd of people, you can continue to live on surface earth if you want. That's fine. That's up to you. But if you want to follow me, if you want to enter my kingdom, this is how you're going to live and this is how life will look for you. See, surface earth life has a worldview. And let me see if I can describe it accurately for you. Because this is what you and I have been trained to believe and how we live. Two things, we have the right to live and we have the freedom to love. We believe that we have the right, as far as it relates to us, to do anything that we want and not to do anything that we don't want. That's that's our right to live. And as it relates to other people, we feel that we have the freedom to love. We're free to love whomever we want and ignore whomever we want as long as we don't do them harm. Is that an accurate description of our worldview today? And that feels right. That, That feels pretty good. But then along comes this crazy rabbit. And Jesus says, in my world, it's completely different. In my world, you do not have the right to live, but you have the requirement to die. And in my world, you do not have the freedom to love, you have the responsibility to love. And that's what we'll find in our text today. In verse 20, Jesus has said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. How are you going to get down that hole into this wonderland of Jesus? Your righteousness has to be greater than the scribes and Pharisees, and that's what he's describing in all of chapter 5. This is what you have to be like to be in the kingdom of God. So if you were a follower of Jesus today, let me introduce you to your new Bill of Rights. First, the requirement to die. Chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. Now, Jesus is continuing his section in the Sermon on the Mount where he is fulfilling the law. Literally, he is filling it up full. 
He is taking what the Old Testament said and and not changing it, but he is adding to it in the sense of he's unfolding for us the intent behind the law, the purpose behind it that the lawgiver had in his mind when he gave the law. And Jesus alone has the right to do that because as God, he was the lawgiver. And so he says in a series of statements, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, as Joe taught us last week, you have heard, but ego lego, as Jesus begins to fulfill and give us the deeper meaning behind the letter of the law. And so in verse 38, he says, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, is this actually in our Bible? It is. Absolutely. Here's the verse. Well, we need to die to our honor. Here's the verse, Deuteronomy 19. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And we gasp and say, that's terribly barbaric. But actually, at this point in time, this was an advance in civil law. And it was a law that was codified even before the time of Moses, because we see a law just like this in the Code of Hammurabi in the 18th century B.C. And it did a couple of things. One is it was a deterrent for further violence. In fact, Deuteronomy 19 goes on to say, if you do this, you will purge the evil from your midst. You know, if if you're going to get your eye poked out, you're probably not going to poke somebody else's eye out. Just plain and simple. That's that's pretty fair. But it does something more than that. It prevented excess in response. Because imagine if somebody poked your eye out, you probably wouldn't be happy with poking their eye out. You'd want to go and clobber them all the way and probably even kill them. And what happens in that kind of a setting is you get blood feuds that just escalate and society begins to deteriorate. And so this law was put in to put a a, a limit on that, to manage that so that things didn't get out of hand. And when bad was done, it was repaid tit for tat and the ledger was square, justice was done and everybody was okay with it. But here's the thing that we don't understand in the West. Jesus said, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If you were slapped on your right cheek, it probably was because a right-handed person was slapping you with the back of their hand. And that was the most insulting thing you could do in the Middle East in that, in that time. In fact, slapping somebody that way got twice as big a fine as slapping somebody with an open palm. Because what that was saying, it was the ultimate disrespect And when somebody does that to you, what's your response? Well, you want to go to this verse and at least slap them back, if not do more to them. And and you were allowed by the law to slap them back, to make it even. And your concern at that point wouldn't just be to punish them, but to regain your own honor. Because if you just stand there and do nothing, you look like a weenie and an idiot. And your honor just melts away like a marshmallow in the rain. It would be like sort of the classic Western saloon confrontation scene where, you know, the bad guy challenges your manhood and everybody stops drinking. It's just quiet and you could hear a pin drop and everybody's waiting for your response. And for you to do nothing would be inconceivable if you were a real man. And yet Jesus is saying, that's exactly what I want you to do. Don't just do something, stand there. Is what Jesus is saying. And you could almost hear the audience gasp as Jesus made that demand. You see, the first thing that we need to die to as members of the kingdom of God is our own honor. 
And notice what he's not saying. He's not saying if somebody cuts your hand off, give them your other hand to cut that off as well. He's not talking about physical abuse. He's not talking about robbery. He's also not talking, I don't think, about about civil order or about international relations. This is not speaking to having a police force or having an army. In fact, in Romans 13, 4, it says that God has appointed the authorities that are to be an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So it's not like we're letting everything slide in the world. But what Jesus is talking about is interpersonal relationships where your honor has been ground into the dirt by somebody else. And Jesus says, let them grind away. Because your basic problem is your ego. And this is going to help trim that down to size. Secondly, Jesus says, You need to die not only to your honor, but also to your stuff, verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, a quick dressing lesson from the first century. They they wore what they called a loincloth, which was like their underwear. Then they would have their pants and shirt or their skirt and blouse. And then on top of that would be an overcoat. And that overcoat was used as well as a sleeping bag or a pillow whenever it was needed. It was a very important piece of clothing. In fact, it was so important that the law actually demanded that this could never be taken away from you permanently. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. This cloak was the closest thing that the Jewish people had to an inalienable right. Because you couldn't live without the coat. If you didn't have your shirt on, you could still survive. You could put the coat around and you'd you'd be able to manage. But if you didn't have your coat, you You couldn't do anything. You couldn't sleep. You'd probably get sick and die. And what Jesus does in a remarkable turn of phrase, he says, if somebody sues you and takes the shirt off your back, not only are you supposed to let them have it, but you're to take your coat, your inalienable possession, and also give that to them so that you're left with, well, not very much at all. And again, you could hear the audience gasp, what is Jesus talking about? You see, the problem for you and for me is that we're way too much like Stubby. (laughs) Now, he he looks like a wonderful, normal dog, and he is pretty sweet. But about a week ago, we were out playing in the yard, some badminton, and we noticed that Stubby had gone into the neighbor's yard, and he had found the neighbor's dog's rawhide. And he came back real proud into our yard, and we wanted to take it away from him. Well, he didn't want anything to do with that. So he started racing around and my daughter helped me and we, with our badminton rackets, we kind of finally corralled him and that took a few minutes, but got on top of him and we tried to get this rawhide out of his mouth. And you know what? It was pretty near impossible. His jaws were locked on that like a vice grip. He was not going to let it go. We, you know, we tugged on his cheek and his jaw and pulled on that thing. We thought we were going to pull his teeth out and he was not going to let that rawhide go. Well, we finally did get it out by force. But what Jesus is saying is you guys are way too much like that. I give you something and you just go like this. You hold on to it and you refuse to let it go. And he says, when you do that, what you're saying is that that you love the kingdoms of this world more than my kingdom. Because my kingdom is different. I have different values. Stuff doesn't matter in my kingdom. Just let it go. Rather than create fights and have division and disunity. Just let the stuff go. We need to give up in God's wonderland 
our right to our stuff. And Jesus says, if you can't value my kingdom that much, then maybe you don't even have any place in it at all. Well, thirdly, we need to die to our time and our energy. Verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This was a reference to Roman soldiers commandeering civilian labor. And we actually see this at the end of the book, Matthew 27, when Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry the cross of Jesus by the Roman soldiers. They could do this any time they wanted, if there was a job to do or not. They could just make you do it to, to, to keep you in your place and to remind you that you were subject to them and that they were over you. And this caused the Israelites to seethe inside whenever this would happen. And it would do the same to you or me. Now, you and I have probably never experienced anywhere near this kind of discrimination. In fact, most of us have probably never experienced real serious discrimination. But what was happening is that the Jews at any point, at any time, could be required to help the Roman army. And they hated that. They fiercely resisted this imposition from foreign rulers. And they sought to personally retaliate whenever they could. That's why we see violent, resistant movements springing up within Judaism in the first century B.C. and at the time of Christ, like the Maccabees. There were men that rose up and said, we need to fight back because they're grinding us into the dust. And the only way we can have our voice heard is to fight back. And so the Jews were looking for a Messiah that would deliver them from this kind of oppression. And along comes Jesus, the prospective Messiah. And what does he say? He's the rabbit that goes down this goofy rabbit hole and ends up in this bizarre land where he says, not only should you go with them one mile, but when you're done with that, put their backpack on your shoulders and go another whole mile. He's saying, this is how you can become salt and light in the world by being so different than everybody else. And to do that, it might require that you give up your time and your energy to serve other people. But if you belong to my kingdom, you'll be willing to do that. Fourthly, you need to die to your money. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The genuinely poor were numerous in Jesus' day. They got asked for money frequently. And our knee-jerk reaction is to keep our money, not to give it. Is it not? And Jesus flips that around on its head and he says, your knee-jerk reaction needs to be to give your money, not to keep it. Because if, if you are valuing his kingdom, then his righteousness will be more important to you than the things of this world. And you can use the money of this world that he's given you to minister to those who are poor and needy. We need to be like Jim Carrey in Yes Man, whose response changed from no all the time to, well, my, my first reaction is going to be, yes, I will help, I will do that. The primary obligation of the kingdom is to serve others, not ourselves. To think not of our harm and our loss, but of the good of others. To have a radically unselfish attitude to our rights and our property. Now, you may have some questions as you've thought about those four ways that God wants us to die. Uh, we could spend hours on this, but let me just ask a couple of questions. Did, did Jesus mean these things comprehensively? Like, is this a, a list of everything we have to do, and if we check them off, then we can say that we're spiritual? Well, no. This is not Triteronomy, the third giving of the law. 
where everything is spelled out that we need to do. No, Jesus instead is giving us some direction, not directions. And, and this, I think, was in actually yesterday's paper. And when I saw it, I thought, this is a perfect illustration of this point. John says to Garfield, don't claw me or bite me or anything else on this 200-page list. So out of all the rules he could possibly think of, except Garfield says, I'm going to smack him with the list. <laughs> See, the problem with making a list is you, you're never going to cover all the bases. And the law of Moses was a long, long list, like a thousand things that they had to do. And they could go through and they could check everything off and say, now I've done all of these things. But Jesus' law is different. He's not giving us a list here. He's giving us principles. He's not giving us a map. He's giving us a compass to point us in the direction that we need to go. These are examples, merely suggestive and not exhaustive. But then you might ask, did Jesus mean these four things literally? Like, do I really have to turn the other cheek? Well, what do you think? That would be a great discussion question for a Sunday school class. And I think the answer is yes and no. See, because there's two dangers as we start to interpret this. One is that, that we will interpret these hyper-literally. And that we will just take the letter of the law and fall into the same trap that the scribes and the Pharisees had. So that, for instance, we would say, if somebody hits me square on the cheek, then I will turn my other cheek. But if they miss by a couple inches and hit my jaw, then I'm going to really let them have it. And Jesus goes, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. You're missing the principle. Or if you say, a soldier has never asked me to carry anything a mile, therefore, verse 41 doesn't even apply to me. You're missing the whole point. You're being hyper-literal about this. And yet the danger on the other side is that we will kind of blow this off and say, well, all Jesus meant is that we just need to be nice to people. And as long as we're nice to people, then we're good with these verses. No, Jesus means a lot more than being nice to people. He's talking about a radical commitment to love other people through denying our rights to our honor, our stuff, our time and our energy, and even our money. So how do we apply this teaching? Paul said he was not bound to the law of Moses. He was bound to the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is the law of love. What we need to do is ask in every situation is how I'm responding is what I'm doing now. Indicating that I love God more than everything else. And is it proving that I love my neighbor as much as I love myself? Those are the questions we need to ask to see if we're following these principles. For instance... If a driver cuts you off in traffic and comes in front of you, what is your first reaction? <laughs> is it to say, praise the Lord? <laughs> my, my dad was in the first hour service and he's taught me something that I'm still learning and that's to give God thanks for everything and he literally does that. I'm not there yet. Because what I want to do is I want to, as soon as possible, get back in front of that guy. Now Why? It's not the 10 seconds that I'm losing getting to my destination. It's my ego, is it not? My honor has been challenged. And I need to rise up like a man and win it back. And so I cut back in front of him. These are dangerous illustrations when your wife is in the audience. But speaking of wives, uh, I sometimes wash my hands at the kitchen sink. And tend to sort of splash around a lot while I'm doing that. 
And so my wife might ask me, why do you make such a mess around the sink when you're washing up? And what do I want to do? I want to just respond and say, well, I don't know what I want to say, but that's just how I wash my hands. Because what, what's, what's happened? She's challenged something deep inside me, that thing called ego. And it, it, it's getting its head cut off and it doesn't like it. And Jesus says, stop that. Cut it out. Don't, don't feel that you have to defend your honor in front of other people and, and fight for things like that. Or how about if the boss at work gives you an extra task to do and the, the guy two cubicles over has so much free time that he spends half his day twittering. What, what are you supposed to do in that situation? Gripe and complain? Well, Jesus says, forget about yourself. Take that task on, work overtime, and ask the boss if there's another job you can do. Joe introduced us to the phrase, ego lego. Let me add one to that. Ego zero. That's where God wants us at. We need to have nothing left of our ego so that we can respond as Christ did in every situation. Now, do you know how hard that is? This teaching makes no sense to the world. In fact, Nietzsche considered Jesus' ethic effeminate. He wanted a morality that consisted of blood and iron. Of course, that's what the communist regime was all about. And that makes a certain amount of sense to us as human beings. We don't want to be a doormat that just lies down and gets trampled on. But that's what the rabbit with the pink eyes comes along and says. Your ego needs to be nothing. Bruner said to ask red-blooded human beings in exploited situations to live like this is to ask them to give up their soul. And that is exactly the point. What Jesus is asking us to do in these verses is to give up our very soul. He's asking for an entirely different breed of human being that flesh and blood cannot produce. So how do we get there? Well, he's already told us at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we need to be those who are poor in spirit. In fact, we need to be so poor in spirit that we get to this point that Jesus talked about a little bit later on in his ministry. If anyone would come after me, if you want to follow Jesus, what do we have to do? You have to deny yourself and take up your cross And follow Jesus. That's what he requires. That's the way down the rabbit hole. That's the way to enter the kingdom of God. Because when you do that, then God gives you of his Holy Spirit. And he transforms you inside. And suddenly, this law becomes something that you want to do. And you have the power to change. And to live in this way that Jesus is describing. And we need to remember that the disciple is not to expect anything other than what the servant endured our master and our savior jesus practiced what he preached he had no money he had no place to lay his head he couldn't pay his taxes he was willing to to go anywhere where there was need no matter how tired he was in fact in isaiah 50 it says that he gave his back to those who struck him his cheeks to those who pulled out his beard he said i hid not my face from disgrace and spitting and when thus led to the slaughter He opened not his mouth. Our master Jesus had a zero ego. And that's what he asks of us as his followers. He wants us to follow him in giving up our honor, 
our stuff, our time and our energy, and even our money. To put the needs of others before our own and to show our devotion to the kingdom of God and not the kingdoms of this world. But there's a second part now of our new Bill of Rights as followers of Jesus. We not only have the requirement to die, we have the responsibility to love. Verses 43 to 48. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Was that in the Old Testament? Well, the first part was, Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But the second part of that quotation was not actually in the Old Testament at all. Although it could be inferred from certain passages in the Old Testament. Like this, that the inspired psalmist David, who was a man after God's heart, wrote, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? So this little phrase, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, is not a direct quote from the Old Testament, but it could be inferred from some of the teachings in the Old Testament. And then Jesus now comes along and with his final ego lego says in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The word, unfortunately, here is agape. And I say unfortunately because that's a very, very difficult word to apply. It means a costly self-sacrifice in the service of someone else. And D.A. Carson tells us that it's a word that is not devoid of emotion. You can't just sort of, you know, do something for somebody and not get involved in their lives and their needs with your own heart. Agape means that you've got both. It does mean by definition action, but it also means that you care about that person as a person. So whom are we supposed to love? Our enemies. That's what verses 46 and 47 are about. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? I mean, the worst people in the world can love those who love them. Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Even those who are non-religious greet people who are their brothers. That's that's surface earth living. That gets no special reward or special commendation. If you want to come down the rabbit hole with me, you need to come to supernatural living. And what happens down here is that we love our enemies. So how do we do that? Well, Jesus doesn't specify too much in this text of how we're to do that. But but love, by definition, means to act, means to do something. And we read in Romans 12, again, the fact that vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we can take our hands off that whole thing of this guy's got to get paid for. He's got to get made right. And then Romans 12 goes on to say this. We should feed our enemy if he's hungry and we should give him drink if he's thirsty and we should heap burning coals on his head. In other words, you should provide for the needs of your enemy. That's how you love them. And then Jesus gives us another way that we love our enemies is by praying for them. Verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This, Bonhoeffer said, is the supreme demand. And he was a man who knew what it was to love and to pray for his enemies. He ended up at the end of a Wire that hung him right before the end of World War II at the hand of his German captors. But he was a man who loved his enemies and prayed for them. And he said, through prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side and plead for him to God. 
That's what God requires of us in his kingdom. That we would love our enemies enough that we would go and ask God to shower his mercy and his blessing on them. John Stott says, If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? Are you loving? Are you praying for your enemies? Finally, why are we to love them? Well, the text is very clear because it's in the character of God. Look at verse 45. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You see, God in heaven is going to not ignore all the sin that's in the world. One day he is going to take account of it. But he is not up in heaven sitting there with his fingers like this, like Mr. Burns, just waiting to, to take his vengeance on his enemies. God is sitting up there in heaven caring for his enemies right now by sending his rain and the sun upon them. And so God says, if you're going to be like me at all, then you also need to love your enemies just like I do and like I evidence every single day by caring for them. You see, now it's the time not to just... Stand there, but to do something. We need to love them. Even though they are our enemies. See, you and I were God's enemies once. As we saw in the scriptures at the beginning of this service, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. He has loved us while we were his enemies. So can we not go and love our enemies with the love that he sheds abroad in our hearts? And if we do so, we will be called sons of our father in heaven, verse 45 says. And that means I don't think that this is the way that you become a child of God, but it is an evidence that you are a child of God. Consider For instance, a man who's a carpenter and his son begins to take an interest in working with wood. And as he gets older, he begins to to turn out products that are almost as good as his dad is making. What what do people say about that son? Say, boy, he's a son of his father. He's turning out just like his dad. And people love that. And that's what God is saying to us here. If you want to turn out just like your dad, you have to love your enemies because that's what he did. Then in verse 48, he summarizes this whole section. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That pretty much covers it all, doesn't it? It's a word that it means more than sinless. it's, It's a word that means complete or whole or mature, where we have now reached the full stature of the fullness of Christ, as Paul talks about. It means that we are now unlimited in our goodness as evidenced in how we respond to people in life. That is the perfection that God requires of us. This is the greater righteousness that he demanded in verse 20 required for entering the kingdom of heaven. And it leaves me with plenty of room for growth as it might for you. Yes, we are sons of God. We're daughters of God. We're in the kingdom. But we need to increasingly grow into that sonship as we become more and more like our father by dying to ourselves and by loving our enemies. There's always room for growth. 
Finally, then, we need to just touch briefly, and and you can, again, get most of these notes in the manuscript if you're interested. But chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, and this is really a whole new section in the Sermon on the Mount. He's finished now the you have heard, but I say section, and he, he begins to talk about spiritual duties, religious righteousness that you perform. And there were three main ones for the Jews, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And so that's what he talks about for the next 15 verses. And, and the summary is in verse 1 of what he wants to say in this whole section. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. It is important what we do. We need to be doing almsgiving, we need to be praying, and we need to be fasting. But equally important is why we do what we do. Because if we do right things for the wrong motives... That will not get us anywhere at all. And that's the point of this section. There's a pattern to all three of these. There's a warning, a teaching, and an assurance. And let me quick point that out to you. The the warning, we read verse 1, look at verse 2. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. The warning is don't do your religious deeds for the adulation of other people. Because if you do, you might get the adulation and the applause of others, but that's all you're going to get. There's nothing more coming. In fact, that's what the word means, paid in full. You've got all that you're going to get coming to you if you do those good deeds so that people will think you're good and spiritual. So don't do that. Instead, what do you need to do? The teaching is in verse 3. But when you give to the needy, not if you give, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And that has to be hyperbole. It it means simply do it in secret. Don't let anybody know. In fact, don't even think a whole lot about it yourself. As John Stott said, Christian giving is to be marked by self-sacrifice and self-forgetfulness, not self-congratulation. How easily we slip into that. But finally, there is a reward that he promises, verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Here's the good news. The boss sees what you're doing. Don't you hate it at work when you, when you do something really well or do something that helps the company move forward and nobody even notices? The boss never even hears about it and life just goes on. It's like, oh, got it. Didn't get anything out of that. Well, not that we do these alms so that we'll get something out of it, but he wants to remind us that the boss sees what is done in secret. It's not unnoticed But he upstairs is keeping track of that. And what's he going to do? Your father who sees in secret will reward you. A different word than the word used in verse 2. He will pay us back is what it means. And he doesn't tell us what that is because I think he doesn't want us to get so caught up in what we're going to get out of it. He's not a a TV preacher that says if you give me a hundred bucks, God will send you two hundred in the mail. Because that's only just really giving to yourself, isn't it? He's saying, give to the poor, give to my kingdom, take your hands off your stuff, and if you do that, I will pour it back to you somehow. It might be through a clear conscience. It might be through a more intimate relationship with God. It might be rewards in heaven. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but he sees, and he will reward you for it. Well, as a child, I never did finish Alice in Wonderland. I I couldn't get past the first few chapters. It was just too weird. (laughs) 
Sounds like some of you are with me. It was, it was too different from everything that I experience in life. And, and I still have never read the whole book. And I wonder if you're here this morning feeling that same way about the things we've just talked about. You say, you know, I've, I've heard you for a while now and what you've talked about is just so bizarre. I mean, it's so weird. I, I can't get into that at all. I, I just want to close the book and go back to life as I know it. And if you feel that way, I would certainly understand that. But I, I pray that that will not be what happens this morning. My prayer is that God, by His Spirit, will, because His Spirit is the one who knows the mind of God, that He will reveal to you today the mind of God. And that you will understand that what we've talked about today is not just the wild imaginings of a human author. Because while those might be fun and entertaining, they are ultimately meaningless. But what we've talked about today is the only real and true reality that there is. There is no other lasting kingdom. And there is no other kingdom worth being a part of than the kingdom of God. And so would you let the Holy Spirit just let the, the scales fall from your eyes and say, this is weird stuff, but if I go down that rabbit hole, I'm going to find life and life everlasting. And if you'd like to learn more about that, we would love to explain to you the way of God more fully. Don't leave the service, but there will be people here at the front afterwards that would love to talk to you and explain that more in detail to you. But if you are one today who claims to be a follower of Jesus, let me ask you as we close this question. Has the kingdom come in your life? Has this kingdom come in your life? My kingdom, Jesus said, is not of this world. The world says you have rights, the right to live and the freedom to love. Your new bill of rights says this, all you have is the right to die and the responsibility to love. So are you today loving your enemies? Who are they? They might be individuals. It might even be a group like the Muslims of the world that we have come in our society to hate because of 9-11 and things that have happened since then. They are our enemies. But what are we to do? We're to love them, to pray for them, that God might open their eyes. And have you died to yourself? How can you tell? How can you tell if a body is dead? Well, one way is to poke it with a needle. If there's any life in there, it's going to respond. And if you respond to the pokes and the prods of life by reacting and defending yourself and clutching to the things that God has given you, then you have not died to yourself. Because the only part of you and me that can be hurt is the part that has not died. And Jesus' call to us this morning is to come and die with him. George Mueller said, there was a day when I died utterly to George Mueller. And his opinions, his preferences, and his tastes, and his will. I died to the world and its approval and its censure. I died to the approval or the blame of even my brethren and friends. My friends, all we're doing in this matter is following our Savior, Jesus. Rather than claiming his right to life, he took on the requirement to die. And rather than being free to love or hate, he committed himself to love his enemies, you and me, and all those who have ever 
shaking their fist in God's face. And he did it all the way to the cross, which is what we want to remember today. God has given us some symbols to remember the death of Jesus. A piece of bread and a little bit of juice that will remind us of his body and his blood. And as the men come forward to distribute the elements, let me suggest that this would be a great time for you in just a few moments to examine your own heart. This is what Jesus has done for you. This is the way into the kingdom of God. Have you entered there? Have you died to yourself? Are you loving your enemies as your Savior did? Here at College Park, we practice open communion, which means that everyone who's a believer in Jesus Christ, whether you're a member or not, is free to partake with us. Dave led us through an examination of our own hearts in the elder prayer. And if you've cleansed your heart in confession, you are free to partake and to remember what Jesus has done for you. And as you do that, would you let his spirit examine your heart to see if you are like him in dying to yourself and in loving your enemies.